0: Welcome to great minds and our guest today is jimmy waldo jimmy is a seminal figure in american music the last 30 40 years and is one of these guys who you know his work you know him but have been in some seminal acts which are getting new life as we're here in 2021 uh, but Jimmy, I'd love to go back and we were just talking about Boston and New England. And I'd love to start with New England. Sure. And a little song, Don't Ever Want to Lose You, right. which really broke through in a huge way. And I think that was probably about 1978,
1: 79. The record came out in 79. Yes. <laughs> it in 78 and uh it, it actually was released in 79 and a huge
0: hit and a breakthrough on the billboard charts back when that meant something
1: yeah it, exactly back when it meant something uh when bands got airplay and and you know it, it was it was all pay for play i mean the record company was hiring uh uh hookers lots of cocaine lots of uh you know the they did everything they could to break that record. But at some point, the record, did. it just took off. I mean, people did like it, and it took off. And, uh, and then our touring was all timed perfectly with that. So uh, we, we toured with Kiss and Sticks and Kansas and, oh, gosh, a ton of other acts, Cheap Trick, ACDC, Journey. Um, so we it was a perfect... The perfect storm, you know, for us in a good way.
0: And you guys shared a manager with Kiss and wasn't Paul Stanley very involved with you also?
1: Paul Stanley co-produced the first album with Mike Stone, who engineered it uh, and co-produced it with Mike, with uh, Paul. Uh, Mike had done the Queen Records with Roy Thomas Baker. It engineered those.
0: Fantastic. So, Jimmy, you've been a part of some incredible bands and we're going to talk about Alcatraz. We're going to talk about Blackthorn. Uh, and you've played with and were part of, you know, a tremendous, prolific period in American rock and roll. Jumping ahead today, one of the things I lament is when you see the big award shows on TV. When you, you know, read what people write about, rock and roll is getting pushed to the back of the bus.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: <laughs> and metal, definitely. metal, heavy rock and roll, really getting pushed. Yeah, it's the not back even on the bus. The bus. Yeah, yeah, not even yeah. on the bus. You, you might be right. Yeah. Do, do you lament that? Do you think it's a cyclical thing? I love rock and roll. Uh, so many people in this country still do. And the passionate following for the bands that you've been in, I mean, the excitement around you know the Blackthorn Project now you know, is palpable. But as a musician and someone who's so passionate about rock and roll, do you think about that? Do you worry about it? And do you think that we can find our way back to rock and roll.
1: Well, I'd like to think so. Uh, but but Alcatraz, about two years ago, played out in the Midwest. We played in Florida. We worked our way up the East Coast. And uh, we played in Queens at a club in Queens. I don't remember the name. But really great club. And then we, we played Daryl's House upstate. And then we went out to uh, Minnesota, Duluth, a bunch of places out there and the attendance for all those shows was horrible, was really, really bad. And all the club owners said the same thing. They just said that this kind of music is just not, doesn't do well for them and Mm. uh, tribute bands work really well for them. And that's kind of depressing. You know, they would, people would pay to see a, a Pink Floyd tribute band but they don't come to see us so uh we don't tour in the united states as of I mean all our we do well in europe and the uk right and japan loves rock and, and ball, japan so. yes yeah japan yeah. goes without saying uh yeah japan does great i don't know if it's going to come back I, I got i don't know man it, it's like i say people it's a it's a hip-hop Uh, Miley Cyrus world out there. And I think Miley Cyrus is really talented. It's nothing against her personally, but, um, but, you know, it's funny. I go to my dentist in Chicago and there's a a little girl, the assistant, she couldn't be more than uh, 25 at the most. And she looks like a, a, a typical schooled, you know, she's definitely trying to be get in this, that world of the dental thing. And uh, she's asking me, she goes, she's very shy. And she says, oh, so what, what band do you play in? And I said, well, you've never heard of it. <laughs> I said, you know, it's way before your time. And she said, oh, well, what band? And so I told her Alcatraz. And she goes, oh, I know Alcatraz. She goes, what a great band. And she starts rattling off songs. And she goes, I'm a big metal head. So here's a girl, 25 years old, working in a dentist office that you would never in a million years, she's a big metalhead. They're out there. It's just that there's not enough of them. <laughs> and um, country music, hip hop, rap, and pop, the crossover-y pop stuff, you know, Taylor Swift, stuff like that. Yes. It. So and it- people's attention spans, it seems, are really short. Uh, my nieces you know i they're they they listen to a song and then they they're onto something else and then they don't they don't stay focused on any one artist or anything like like we used to uh i'd get i'd get hold of an artist as a kid man and i would like wear out the record and we'd talk about it you know uh we, at school we'd be like man did you hear the new whatever record and not, it just doesn't seem to be like that anymore.
0: And, and certainly the way bands get broken is very different today than it was back when, you know, New England was breaking. And you touched on it, but that era of payola and of, <laughs> you know, real excess, um, we had Marshall Chess on the podcast and he was talking about, you know, how you know, he drove to New York to talk yeah. to Alan Freed, and right. that's how he got Chuck Berry, you know, Maybelline on white radio. You know, right. before then, there was black radio and white radio. Right. And right. and everybody who played records got paid. Yeah. That must have been really interesting. You're a pretty young guy when New England is breaking, and you're on the road opening for Kiss and playing yeah. with Sticks and Journey. That must have been really Eye-opening, to say the very least.
1: It, it was eye-opening, and then getting to know those people, hanging out with Sticks, uh, super, super nice people. Tommy Shaw and I actually, uh, we used to play. We didn't know each other then, but I used to play clubs in Michigan that he played. We had the same booking agent, and, who was a thief, of course. And uh, so Tommy and I—that's the first thing we were talking about when we—I met him at the first Sticks show. And we talked about that backstage for a while. Um, but um, they, uh, I, it was an eye-opener seeing the crowd, the size of the crowd. But I had no concept of money. Like, how much? What, I didn't even think, like, how much money are they making? And I was talking to Jay, the other guitar player, uh, one day before. We, we all just got there. And nothing going on. Jay and I were just shooting a breeze. And I said something about merchandise and he said that he said yeah he said you know we've been doing well this tour of merchandise he goes last night we did uh like 150 grand or something and I I was I almost fell over you know I I don't know what I was thinking I I'm thinking he's gonna say yeah we did twenty thousand dollars last night you know 150 grand, and all of a sudden, I i thought, Oh my god, if they made that merchandise, how much did they make playing? Because yeah. the play, a 20,000-seater packed. So, that yeah, that was a good learning uh, touring with those bands. That was a real good learning experience, absolutely. Uh, Bill O'Coin was you know, he was like a teacher, he was great, and uh. And I, you know, we got to know them well, the guys kiss well. So Gene, I hung out with Gene quite a bit. And and Gene is a, uh, Gene's an encyclopedia. There's nothing he doesn't know about music or, you know, the, the business or uh, the history of it. So, yeah, that was all, a, that was a quick, a, a quick going to college, you know, like bam. Sure was. So uh, I'm sure you've seen
0: it. One of my favorite movies is Rob Reiner's Spinal Tap.
1: Yes. And,
0: oh and incredibly funny and, and full of heart in so many ways. We're in the group, right? You're in the group that's playing tonight. You go right straight through the store here, down the hall, yeah. turn right, yeah. and then there's a little jog there about 30 Job. feet, uh-huh. jog to oh, the we left. We don't have time for that. Go straight okay, ahead. Two, go straight ahead. turn yeah. Try and write the next two corners. And the first door you sign, authorized personnel only. Yeah. Open that door. That's the stage. You think so? You authorized. You're musicians, that, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Right. thank you. Thank you very much. You Rock and roll. Right. Rock and roll! Yeah, let's get it. Let's get it. Uh, uh, this way. No. Let's no, see this way. This way. This way. Rock, and roll. Roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Here we go.
1: Hello, Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland!
0: Ah. You must have made a wrong got go another way. Other way. Other way. Other way. Other way. Yeah. There must have been all kinds of crazy shit that happened when things did not go well for you as oh. you were starting out, oh. where you oh. end up you end up in the wrong place, you know. Give us uh. give us one from that era, Jimmy.
1: Uh, wow. Uh, holy cow. Ah oh, god. Uh, that's crazy that I'm nothing's coming to mind, but, uh, it's okay. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, I, once at uh, new England, before we were officially new England, same guys and we used to play up in Canada all the time. And, um, we had a booking agent and, uh, he would book us up there some, and he was a good guy and we liked him and he booked us a lot in Vermont, New Hampshire and stuff. Uh, so he booked us this gig in Canada in the winter, which no big deal. We weren't afraid of the snow. So we took off and we got there. We drove about four hours, five hours, maybe. I don't even remember long, long ways. And we get there. There was no gig. This guy, he said, no, I didn't book you guys. He goes, we don't even have bands here anymore. And I was like, What? So we had driven five hours in the snow and we'd gotten there. And of course we called our agent right away. He didn't answer. He was nowhere to be found. So that was, uh, (laughs) that was an IO. That was depressing.
0: Oh Um, my God. uh, But one of the things Jimmy that strikes me about your incredible career is the people that have sort of weaved in and out of your life. And, um one of the early guys who weaved in just got into the rock hall a lot of people think long overdue was todd rundgren yeah right now we'd like to introduce once again the multi-talented
1: todd rundgren in this next song todd is going to sing live to a pre-recorded track and that includes playing the sax the drums the bass Duke, and the Duke, rock- Duke. he does it all by himself i told you he could yeah, do he it all it. here he is todd, todd rundgren. Rundgren.
0: Talk about Todd, talk about Todd, and I know he was very involved with you at New England.
1: Oh my God, he was amazing. I'd always been a Todd Rundgren fan. Uh, All the guys in the band were Todd Rundgren fans. So when it came time to do that record, when we talked about producers, we said it would be great to get Todd Rundgren. So uh, O'Coin got hold of him and and no problem. Uh, We auditioned some other producers, uh, nothing that was, wasn't really doing it for us. So, a uh, Todd, we did it at Todd's house up, but he's got a place up Mink Hollow Road, um, a little chalet, a funky little chalet that's his own studio, and that's where we recorded. We stayed in, at a hotel in Binghamton, but we drove every day up, up there, um, not Bearsville, and, um, Working with Todd was an amazing experience. That guy, that's one of the most musical people I've ever met in my life. Um, He's a real, he's what I call a real producer, the real thing. Because Todd will sit at the piano and he just said, just play the song, we'll work out the harmony. And Todd didn't push his ideas. Todd would do what's right for the band. Todd would say, Okay, you sing, oh, no, your voice is not good up there. You sing the middle part. And so I would, I would look for a harmony, and, and he, would, he would suggest a few things. He never pushed his, his musicality on us. It was always just trying to bring the most out of the band. But he was a great guy. We, we had a blast. We had way too much fun. That's
0: great. studio and- with him. And and Jimmy, take us, you know, people on the outside, you know, we don't really understand what happens when, you know, a group of talented musicians and a great producer like a Todd Rundgren get in the studio. Often, a lot of this stuff feels like it gets worked out right there. It does. Take us inside the studio.
1: It did with us. Like with Todd, uh, we did pre-production. That is, we rehearsed the songs at Todd's rehearsal place first, so we spent about a week in his warehouse rehearsing. Todd came down twice and listened to the songs, made a few comments about arrange, arrangements. You know that you know that's the chorus is too long. The first chorus should be half as long or whatever. Um, and then we went into the studio and we just played, and Todd is it was all happening the band was really tight we used to play a lot and that was our third record so we a lot of studio experience blah 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 but Todd would we'd just do stuff on the fly I mean we did that New England record in two weeks in 14 days working from noon till 6 p.m and that's all we could work there because Todd had another project going a video project so we'd we'd walk in that studio at 12 o'clock noon and we'd play a song once and Todd would start making comments right away in a good way you know some good comments like yeah I love that section I love this section And, and he might suggest hey why don't you play a piano thing there and then I would literally just turn around and jump on the piano and we'd hit one two three go record so it was it was really about as live and spontaneous as it gets with his direction. And the, he was a consummate producer that, and that's what you're, that's what a producer should do is inspire the band to, to get the best performance out of the band, make the band comfortable, and suggest parts if need be. if, if somebody's stuck on a part, um, like he said, In the one song, he said, oh, I hear a piano thing there. He goes, okay, the song's called Elevator. So Todd, he goes, Elevator, so why don't you play a thing on the piano? I don't know if you can hear this, but. So just a chromatic run down the keyboard with both hands, like a real typical rock and roll, just ding, 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 ding. You know, and it sounds so silly but you know you think about it it was so such a simple idea it's an elevator up down down you know i mean just simple things like that and then other things he'd pick up a guitar and he'd work out a part and all this is in like two minutes and john would go oh i see what you're doing okay and play the part and uh
0: Fantastic.
1: so yeah he he was hands-on and lyrics i had a piece of music uh We John had writer's block. So towards the end of the the record, Todd goes, so what are the songs? What are you going to record? And I said, well, we don't have a song. And Todd goes, do you have anything? And we're in the studio. We got to do it. We only got another two days. So I said, well, I've got this thing that I wrote, and I played it on the keyboard, and Todd goes, that's great. And everybody in the band liked the idea, but we'd never done it. So the drummer just, we just, he and I played along, John picked it up, Gary, and, and we, we just, we recorded it. We just worked out the arrangement real quick. Todd made a few suggestions, and I, I kid you not, in probably less than an hour, that song went from my idea on a keyboard to finished. And uh, because the band was tight, I mean, we were really, uh, we'd played together for a long time and blah, blah, blah. So John goes, I don't have any melody or lyrics for this. So Todd's sitting on the stairs in his studio with a legal pad. And I kid you not again, 15 minutes, he wrote the lyrics for that. It's a song Amazing. called L5 about going to L5, which is this a mythical place in the universe uh, that you can go on a space station and live it's called coordinates were l5 so todd wrote the lyrics for that and wrote the melody and we just and john looks at the lyrics goes okay we just fooled around with it for a minute i would say in three hours that song from beginning to end was done overdubs and everything
0: Unbelievable. I, I'm I'm sure you've seen it, but I've watched probably a dozen times. It's about a 25-minute video where George Harrison tells the true history of the traveling Wilburys.
1: Right. And I've that never seen it. No. It's
0: completely worth just look it up on you, completely worth watching.
1: I, I love it. I love George Harrison. So and I love and, the traveling Wilburys.
0: And he tells this story where he said he was sitting around with Tom. They used to like to play ukulele's. Uh-huh. And he said, one day we decided to ring up Bob Dylan. He said, you can call Bob and he may not call you back. You might not get him for two years, you know, but this time he picked up on the first string and said, yeah, I'm around. And then they got Jeff Lynn and they said, hey, how about we try to get Roy Orbison in the band? And they Roy was playing somewhere else in California and they took a ride and Roy said, yeah, I'll join the band. And then all those guys, you know, pretty busy, found nine days where they could all be together. And they, they got together at Dave Stewart's house and they recorded, they wrote a song, wrote and recorded a song a day for nine days. And that was the first Traveling Wilburys album. So I think what most of us don't understand, you know, who are just passionate fans of music, is, you know, what that creative process is like. And sometimes, you've got to get it done because there's X amount of time. It's not about when the creative, you know, when it strikes you, sometimes you're under the gun and you've got to fucking get it done.
1: Yeah. New England was that we, we had Rundgren said, if you guys can do this record in 14 days, he said, I'll produce, I would love to produce it. I like the band. He said, but I've got he was going on tour. So he, he had rehearsals or something he had to start doing and, uh, he said, I'm out of here. You know, I can't. So on the 15th of the month or whatever, and we just jumped at it. And that's what we did. And, and we went up there and just knocked it out um, with his help.
0: Right, uh, right.
1: But he didn't write the songs. I mean, he, he wrote the lyrics and melody to that one song. And he only played guitar. He played a guitar harmony solo with John on one song. But other than that, he didn't play on anything. Uh, but he,
0: but he figured out a way to get the best out of all of you. Oh,
1: he was great. But to do that kind of stuff, everybody's got to be on the same page. I mean, the traveling Wilburys, those guys been doing it for so long and they knew there's no full, there's no egos there. They, they had to put all that, check that outside, you know, um, cause they knew what they wanted to do and what they had to do. So they went in and they're pros and they did it and that's what new england did we knew what we had to do and there was no question about it there would be no ands ifs or buts it wasn't like oh man i'm not feeling it today you know oh well yes you are (laughs) you know so you had to do it nowadays and i think it's a i do believe it's a problem to some extent a lot of bands are great a lot of great bands out there now make great records and we just did Alcatraz just did um, but it took us, wow, six months to do that, and uh, which is not an inordinate amount of time. But if if bands could get together and rehearse and work the songs out, some bands do that. And I, I don't know for sure who does it and who doesn't, but there are some bands that still do that. You write the songs. I come in with a song idea, and you go, yeah, well, what if we went to an A right there instead of a, a G? And I go, Oh, that's interesting. And we all do that live and work it out. And that's what new England did. That's the way we worked. Uh, John was the main writer. He would come in with a song and we would all just jump on it and then make it happen. (laughs) You know? So I wish there were more of that young bands. I've produced a lot of young bands and nobody of any note, but, and, The first thing they think of is is Pro Tools about like you can fix it, right? You can fix the vocal. You can fix my guitar. You can fix my drums. And I go, guys, you need to rehearse and get it right from the beginning. If you rehearse enough, you really should do the album in a rehearsal studio and then just go in and record it in a recording studio. I mean, theoretically, you know. Right. Uh, but right, young, right. a lot of young bands don't even know what I'm talking about. They've never seen a 24-track machine. Uh, they've never been in a real studio.
0: Yeah,
1: no. They, it's a different world. Different yeah, world. Way different world.
0: So you have this great success with New England, and then you and Gary, along with Graham, create an incredible band, which we've been talking about a little bit, but I'd love to go back a little deeper and talk about the beginning of Alcatraz. Sure. And a great, great, great run. They named it the
1: well, Gary and I moved to LA uh, to work with uh, Vinnie Vincent. We had a band with Vinnie Vincent uh, for a while that didn't work out so then we got turned on to uh, Graham Bonnet's manager and the three of us, Graham and I and Gary got together worked on a couple songs and said hey let's do a band and uh, it wasn't the Graham Bonnet band it was just you know, we didn't have a name or anything. And we put some songs together. And then we were supposed to have a drummer and a guitar player from England were supposed to come over. Um, and that fell through. So we, we already had a record deal beginning at that point. They got interested in it right away. And so we auditioned drummers and guitar players. And... <laughs> And we found, uh, we got Ingvey. we had different drummers, we couldn't get locked in on a drummer. So we ended up getting Ingvey before we even got a real, the, the, the final drummer. And then uh, the drummer was the last part of the puzzle. And then we, uh, we had the songs pretty together. The drummer came in, we we were playing live down at our rehearsal place. The the record company had a big rehearsal place. Uh, So we rehearsed down there, big soundstage, great PA, blah, blah, blah. So we rehearsed down there, put the songs together once we got the drummer and uh, they had a studio. So we moved about 50 feet next door to the studio and recorded the record almost live. I mean, we all set up in the studio and played live, and then we just fixed some stuff. And Graham went in, redid his vocals, but um, it was pretty almost a live record.
0: And some of those songs, Island in the Sun, you know, uh, amazing songs
1: that have really stood the test of time. Yeah, it's funny. Island in the Sun was, was supposed to be a New England song. I I wrote the music. So I'd written that music in New England uh did it it's on a compilation now on cherry red <laughs> a new england compilation that came out a couple years ago uh it was called take another ride but wow. we never recorded it we just did a rehearsal tape of it so it never came out so i took the rift la and i played it for uh graham and ngbe and, and just playing it immediately he's going oh yeah man that's great that's great and he's wailing over it and so Graham took a tape, we played it live at rehearsal, and then he took the tape and wrote lyrics and a melody. Well, we all chipped in on the melody, but uh, yeah. Fantastic.
0: And then we talked about Todd quite a bit, but another iconic musician weaves his way into your life, Jimmy, and that's Stevie By.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was incredible. I love Steve.
0: Talk uh, about that and, and, you know, one of the great, great
1: guitar players this country's ever produced. Amazing. Um, well, Ingday was going to leave the band. We knew that. There was no bad vibes. Yngwie uh, and I talked and he said, yeah, I want to do my own band. And so we needed a guitar player. So we, um, we auditioned some guys. And uh, David Rosenthal, from Billy Joel's band, the keyboard player, music director, David and I were friends. I was calling everybody I could think of to find a guitar player. Uh, I had talked to several guitar players in LA, some pretty you know, respectable name guys, really good players. And they came over to my house and we listened to some music and they weren't interested. Uh, and I don't know if it was because they didn't want to follow ingvay or they just didn't like the whole thing. I don't know. So anyway, David Rosenthal, I called him. I said, David, I'm looking for, we need a guitar player. And he goes, I got a phone number, call this number. And that's all you need to do. You don't need to look any farther. This is your guy. So I called up Steve and he lived in LA. so, um, and Steve was like, wow, you want me? And I said, well, I don't know. I'd love to get together and play. And he goes, Oh, I can't play that in stuff. And I said, well, we don't want you to play the in stuff. We want you to just do your thing. And so Steve and I got together and just kind of hung out for an evening and talked and listened to a bunch of music. And I listened to a bunch of Zappa stuff, which I'm not a fan of Frank Zappa, but I was listening to Steve's playing and it was obvious that the guy's a monster player. Um, So then he came down to a rehearsal, an audition, and uh, he was amazing. He was, it was so reckless. The guy had so much energy and he just played with this reckless abandon. There was nothing nice about it. Uh, He just went for it. His guitar cabinet had one speaker missing. His guitar had problems. He, He basically had two guitars. And I never saw him play the other one. He always played the same guitar and it had grounding problems or something. So, Steve was the most untechnical guy. But, man, he just played like the devil. You know, he just was possessed. And I loved it. I loved that energy. Uh, I just loved that energy. And so, um, the other guys we'd auditioned were great, some great players. But uh, we we decided to go with Steve, something different, and with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, as well as his musical background and yeah. his writing ability. So um, I we he had a little studio in his house. He built a little room in his garage, a little eight-track studio, and um, so I started going out there every day. And Steve and I would work. He would have a song and we we'd kind of work it up and talk about it and you know i'd make comments about like the direction or the tempo or whatever but steve was writing it he wrote the the stuff um and it was fun working with him was fun (laughs) we we had a blast and for me it was great as a keyboard player i'm not a chops guy i didn't go to school or anything so to work with steve I'm just like a sponge. I'm soaking up all this musical, you know, talent, basically. And he's suggesting things. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's a cool idea. And uh, so, yeah, working with him was special. And I love that record. I'm very proud of that record. It didn't sell two copies, but I'm very proud of it. And Eddie Kramer, who's one of my best friends, just did a fantastic job uh, producing it so yeah lots lot to be proud of yeah
0: you talk to me about the wilburys all checking their egos at the door i wonder if the same could be said of some of the you know the early days of alcatraz you had guys who were all in successful bands from iron maiden to rainbow to iron butterfly to alice cooper's band Right. And you all, you know, Steve Vai, who we talked about, you guys all get together. Was that tough? It's almost like a supergroup before anybody knew what a supergroup was.
1: You know, it wasn't hard at all. Uh, I never even thought about it, but there were no, there was no ego issue. Uh, like when Clive Burr from Iron Maiden came to, we call it an audition, but we thought he was going to work out. It. it just didn't work. But but Clive was a sweetheart. I mean, we had a really good time, and we spent three days rehearsing and stuff. And he was totally cool. Um, Jan Uvina, the drummer, had been with Alice Cooper and Iron Butterfly and all this stuff. Jan had no ego whatsoever. He was cool, and you know, Ingve. People, there's all the rumors and the crap that floats around about Ingve, but it's all nonsense. Yngwie came in total professional. The only thing Yngwie ever did that was at rehearsals or writing sessions that was like a problem, he couldn't stop playing. He would, he'd love to hear the sound of a hundred watt Marshall on 10. So we would be talking about an arrangement and Yngwie would go, yeah, well, I'm thinking, you know, this thing. And then, and then there he goes, he would just, no, we're not even playing. is just like wailing. And he was 18 years old, you know, and, and so we had to calm that down. But other than that, uh, really, no, e- and with Steve Vai, there were no ego whatsoever. Uh, no ego problems there. So, Amazing. Yeah, it's just funny. It's, it's like when you get together to do something like this, or put a band together or whatever it is, record, it just seems that it weeds out the assholes. You know, like if somebody's an asshole, they don't, it doesn't work at all. And you don't work with them. They're, they're gone. (laughs) At least with me and the people that I've worked with, uh, they would have been just gone, you know? Amazing. Well, I guess like any
0: other business, right? Pardon? I guess in many ways, like any other business.
1: It kind of is really, I mean, you hear stories about big executives at some of these huge companies and, uh, and then they, it doesn't work. They, maybe they stay a little longer because of the money involved, but ultimately they get asked to leave or get bought out of their deal, which makes me sick. The money that some of these guys get, but yeah, same thing.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. So Jimmy, what brought us together is uh, a double reissue uh, of Blackthorn's great afterlife. Don't kill the thrill. Right. And uh, Blackthorn, let's call it the third chapter of a a career that you are still very much in the midst of is an incredible story. Give us the Blackthorn origin story. And there must be a lot of excitement for you around the reissue.
1: Uh, There is. I love it because I love stuff that I'm proud of getting out there again, you know, And some of that stuff had never been out there, never been heard. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, uh, I got together, I met Bob Kulik in New York. When I lived in New York and Bob lived in New York and uh, we met at a KISS show. KISS was, it was KISS's first show with Eric Carr and um, at the Beacon Theater. And Bob and I were backstage and there was a bunch of people back there and Daryl Hall and John Oates and all these people. And we were all just talking. And so I said, Oh, you got to meet Bob Kulik, man. You guys should, you know, should do something. And that's Bob and I hit it off immediately and said, well, we got to do a band. We got to have something we got to do. it Cause in those days, that's what you did. It wasn't called a project. It's like, you're going to have a band. Let's do a band. So Bob and I stayed in touch and then I moved to LA Uh, it's some a few years later New England broke up after a couple albums and I moved to LA unbeknownst to me Bob had already moved to LA so we were both in LA so I called him and said hey let's what are you doing where are you and he goes well I'm in LA so so we got together and talked went over a bunch of songs and said let's do this so uh, we needed a singer obviously So Graham had been in touch with me from Australia. He was living in Australia, really wanted to come back from Australia. He said, man, get me out of here. I gotta come back to to the States. So um, we got him back. And then we had a deal cooking with uh, Polydor in Japan for a really nice piece of money. And um, so we got Graham over and Graham and I and Bob, Bob and I wrote the songs. And uh, a friend of mine, a lyricist friend of mine worked with Graham, helped Graham with lyrics and melodies and stuff. And um, we worked with another drummer and bass player. And then because Chuck and uh, Frankie weren't available at that time, but then within a few months, they became available. So we, Bob and I both said, Oh gosh, we got to work with them. Cause I love working with Frankie and quiet riot. I loved him. So, uh, we had Frankie and Chuck on board and we had the songs together. So we went in and did pre-production with them. We went into a rehearsal place and just played the stuff and, uh, got it tight and then went in a studio and recorded it. <laughs> so the album didn't take that long, really. Um, That was one of those, we spent probably a week or 10 days at rehearsal and then maybe two weeks cutting tracks and then a week of overdubs or maybe a little bit more, maybe a month. And Jimmy, could you
0: imagine then that all these years later that a reissue would, (laughs) you know, and here we are in 2021 and this thing is going you know, great guns.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm blown away. And my manager, Giles Lavery, is the one that put that together. Giles came to my house in Woodland Hills in California. And he goes, one uh, well, of those boxes in your garage, we were about ready to move to Chicago, like in a few months. So I had a bunch of boxes pulled out. And he goes, what's in that? That looks like tapes. And I said, yeah, that's sold tapes. And he goes, Well, can I look through them? And he looked through them and starts seeing all these blackthorn this, blackthorn that. He goes, Oh my God, there's all this blackthorn stuff in there. He goes, Well, here's a, these are rehearsal tapes. These are, you know, outtakes. Here's demos. Cause uh, Bob and I were cutting songs at my house. I had a little studio down the basement and uh, Bob brought a 100 watt Marshall over and we cranked it and went for it. So we were, we were cutting demos you know, going for it on 16 track. And um, Giles found all those tapes and said, my God, there's another album here of stuff that was never released. And I I didn't even think about it. I wasn't even, I was like, really? (laughs) And so he got it out, got it all organized, dats, cassettes, reel to reels, put it all together. And he went through the whole thing and picked because there were some tapes with maybe three versions on it where this one cut off after the second chorus or something and and he found the good versions and and did it so we didn't fix it up or mess with it or anything we took it just like it is and they mastered the whole thing to match but um yeah he found all those tapes in the garage
0: wow what, what a great story well congratulations jimmy this was such a joy to talk to you and and every continued success. Uh, You know, uh, I'm not talented enough to do what you do, but I sure admire what you do. And I love all your work. Uh, And, uh, you know, (laughs) I have a a secret goal in life to one day own a Hammond B3 and learn how to play it.
1: Well, you'll you'll appreciate this. Then I uh, in New England, I had my I have a B3 and I had it taken out of the case and put in a portable case. But the guys did a terrible job as a company in, in New York, did a terrible job. But I toured with that, that Hammond like that. And then when we, when we came back, I couldn't carry a B3, any, I couldn't carry that thing around anymore. So it just sat in a garage in that case. And I, gosh, some years ago, I took it out and put it back in the B3 case, but it wasn't hooked up. The base pedals, wires have been cut and all that stuff. I moved to Chicago. I took the B3 to a guy here in Chicago who, the Chicago Organ Company, his father worked at Hammond. And this guy worked on the assembly line, the assembly line worked at the Hammond factory with his dad as a kid. They would let him come in and he would help his father, and his father would teach him about the organs. So this guy was working on B3s as a 12 year old boy. Um, so I gave him my B3 and it was, it was a wreck. It's bad. It looks bad. And, uh, he's rebuilding it for me and we're going to leave all the cabinetry beat up. Uh, at first I was going to get it all refinished and look nice. And he said, Hey, why don't you leave it trashed and it'll be mechanically and sonically. It'll be great, but it'll look like a pretty vintage. So I did. We, we we're going to leave that we're not going to refinish it we're going to just put a clear coat over it and leave it because uh, it's up. Yeah, but yeah and i'm going to bring it down the basement and i've got a hammond portable that i use and a leslie and a soundproof box back here with a marshall cabinet and a marshall head so um i got a bunch of guitar heads that i play organ through
0: Great, great Hammond, uh, B3 story. Yeah, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen was, it's a great jazz club in London called Ronnie Scott's.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And, uh, and we do a lot of business with those guys. We're big fans of theirs. And uh, Simon, who was GM at the time, and Fred invited me when Booker T did a run oh. there a couple years oh. ago. And I sat probably five yards from him. Uh, and the entire night just watched his hands on oh, the, B, on the B three. And it was a special, a night as you could have.
1: Yeah. It doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. yeah Fantastic. Booker T, one of my favorite, favorite organ players. And he wasn't the flash guy. Uh, I love Jimmy Smith. I really love Jimmy Smith because he played bass pedals. So I really enjoyed that, but uh, Booker T was closer to. I'm not a jazz guy. Never was. So Booker T was really inspirational, and Matthew Fisher from Procol
0: right? Fantastic.
1: And Vincent Crane from Atomic Rooster, and uh, and and Rod Argent, and the list goes on. Great. Well, you are you are right in that
0: group with the with the best keyboard players this country's ever produced, Jimmy. And it was a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time.